Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, and welcome to Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood, and I'm very happy that Comfort Eero, Crisis Group's Interim Vice President, is joining me again as host. Comfort, hi. Hello, Richard. Nice to be back on the show. Today, we're going to talk about the conflict in Mozambique's northern Cabo Delgado region. For the past few years, militants have terrorized an area about the size of Austria. They're known locally as Al-Shabaab, or the youth, though they aren't linked to Somalia's Al-Shabaab. They've treated locals brutally, chasing many from their homes, beheading people, hacking others to death, abducting women and children. Violence has killed some 3,000 people. It's displaced around three-quarters of a million. Security forces, together with private military contractors, have tried to curb the militants' gains, but each time they've bounced back. What has happened in, in Palma is an absolute horror being inflicted on civilians by a non-state armed group. While the Islamic State has receded from the headlines in Syria and Iraq, it is getting attention in southern Africa. What had been a small insurgent group claiming links to ISIS has now taken control of a strategic port in Mozambique. NPR's Ada Peralta reports. The Capital Delgado insurrection is one of the least understood on the continent. There's still a lot of confusion about what has led hundreds of mostly young people to pick up weapons. But global jihadist organization ISIS claims ties to the group. The US calls it a local ISIS branch. Some commanders appear to be hardened jihadists from Tanzania. But the insurrection is also rooted in the recent history of Capal de Gaudio itself. It's driven by local concerns. We cannot stay indifferent as our fellow compatriots in a Sadiq member state continue to wallow under the atrocious, brutal and indiscriminate assaults meted out on them by these faceless terrorists. That was President Masisi of Botswana. In two weeks' time, the Southern African regional bloc, SADC, will meet in the Mozambican capital, Maputo. 
it'll be the latest in a series of SADC meetings that's put the Cabo Delgado violence on the agenda. SADC has been pushing Mozambique to accept a regional force to help fight militants. Mozambique's president, Philippe Nyusi, has resisted that. He's talking to his Rwandan counterpart, Paul Kagame, about getting Rwandan troops to help. To talk about all this, we're joined by Dino Mahtani, who's Crisis Group's Deputy Africa Director. Dino's the author of a big report we have coming out next week on the insurrection. Dino, thanks for joining us. Nice to be on the show. So, Dino, maybe we could start by talking about this SADC meeting that's coming up uh, in a couple of weeks. It's, as we said, the sort of latest in a series of regional meetings about the Cabo Delgado insurrection. What's got regional leaders so worried? Well, the, the conflict appears to be nearing a very dangerous tipping point. And in late March, militants stormed the northern town of Palma, which is the gateway to the country's major gas projects, delivering a, a really serious blow to uh, regional confidence in in so doing, because this was a coordinated operation involving multiple attacking groups, pulling off one of their most spectacular attacks to date. And as they rampaged through the town, killing civilians, robbing a bank, attacking security forces, they also ambushed a convoy of, of vehicles trying to evacuate civilians, including foreign workers, some of whom were killed. Now, tens of thousands of people fled just from this one attack, Uh, taking the total amount of displaced people to about three quarters of a million, as as you've said. And that's that's already between a quarter and a third of the province's total population. Now, in the aftermath, Total, the French multinational, which is investing in a nearby gas liquefaction plant, the biggest foreign capital investment in Africa, has halted its operations there. While there have been some cat-and-mouse military operations and even some small victories by government security forces, things are, are very much far from over. Over the last few years, the regional countries have watched with trepidation. About half the districts of of the province are now affected by the conflict. It's really only the most southern and western districts that have been spared. The fighters have made sporadic raids across the border into Tanzania on a number of occasions. That's got uh, the regions back up. There are also fears that that the implications of this could spread well beyond the borders of Mozambique. So what I mean by that is that regional countries, particularly South Africa, are petrified that the violence in Cabo Delgado could also become a platform for transnational jihadis to come in, uh, take root, and their fears that Islamic State is already tunneling into the insurrection and embedding itself there. And so South South African security officials we talk to And other security professionals there, for example, worry that homegrown radicals from South Africa could, for example, go and join the group in Mozambique, come back even more radicalized, and then perpetrate terrorist attacks in major cities in in South Africa. Can we just dig a little bit deeper? Can you explain sort of why we had the insurrection? Um, Can you give us a little bit more insight into the the group's history, why it came specifically from this northern province of Mozambique and and what is sort of motivating its its fight in the country? So let's look at the group itself. The rank and file, or let's say the muscle of this group, is Mozambican. And they tend to be young men and boys, in particular from two of Cabo Delgado's main communities, the Mwani, who come from the Muslim coast, and the Makwa, the largest community in Mozambique, who are also prevalent in Cabo Delgado's interior. Uh, According to community uh, leaders and religious leaders, security sources, these men also come from a range of of backgrounds. Uh, They could be frustrated petty traders and smugglers in the port city of Musimboya de Praia. 
some of them are struggling fishermen, farm boys, unemployed, desperate youth. Many of them have been consuming the propaganda of East African jihadis, notably the deceased Kenyan cleric Abud Rogo, who was killed in Kenya in 2012. Now, locals in Cabo Delgado refer to the group also as Al-Shabaab, but there's no link with the group in Somalia, its namesake. Al-Shabaab is just an Arabic term for, for the youth. Then you have the leadership or the brains and Mozambican security agencies and even President Philip Nusi say that the leadership is overwhelmingly Tanzanian. We don't just take their word for it. Some of our own sources in Tanzania close to jihadist circles confirm there's some truth to that. There are, however, also top Mozambican commanders. Now, many of the Tanzanians are understood to be connected to madrasas and, and even to Somali al-Shabaab networks who fled crackdowns in Tanzania starting in 2013, continuing in 2015, and most especially in 2017 when, when Tanzanian security forces went on a huge crackdown in Tanzania, killing some of those young men. I mean, there were bodies washing up on beaches near Dar es Salaam and, and this sort of thing. These are very well-known security operations, and we know some of those survivors came to Mozambique after that in 2017, and, and they're part of the insurrection there, which which fired its first shots also in 2017. Now, you asked why has this happened in Cabo Delgado? So Mozambican officials and, and their critics are, you know, they're locked in debates about whether this is a homegrown thing or whether it's foreign-led. You, you hear of officials are often um, pushing the line that this is, you know, brought from outside Mozambique. What is sure is that local frustration has been building within large sections of the Mozambican youth since as far back as 2007, primarily directed, first of all, to local religious leaders, Muslim leaders, including those from, from the official Islamic Council of Mozambique, who the boys identified as the most visible allies of, of the state in society. So th this, this took on a religious flavor, but it was actually partly a question of of local boys attacking a symbol of the ruling elites uh, in, in some, to some degree. There's a sense of exclusion that has been building for decades in, in this province whose political economy is quite particular. It's dominated by elites from, you know, the third uh, important community, the Makonde, predominantly Christian Catholics, and which, as it happens, is the, is the tribe of President Nusi himself. Let me not present this, though, as an ethnic issue. It's not. There are even Makonde boys who are now part of the rebellion um, or, or the, the insurrection, as we call it. So to round up, you had elites capturing a big slice of the political economy and young men who felt their op opportunities being squeezed while they're often shaken down for a cut of their own local revenues. We've, we've picked up stories from local youth of them having to, to hand over money they, they've scraped together on the, from their daily business operations and, you know, fishing operations and so forth. And ruling party officials that we've spoken to acknowledge that economic governance is part of the problem here. I mean, one official I spoke to recently even used the words, a rebellion of the lumpen proletariat. And the use of that Marxist terminology, I guess, resonates within a, a ruling party that was once Marxist-influenced rebels themselves. I mean, just listen to your description, the ethnic dimension of the conflict, where you paint a picture that suggests they are representative of the communities in which they're, they're coming from, in which they're fighting. Is that accurate to say that they fully represent um, the local population? Because if that's true, then, you know, why are, are they attacking civilians 
in the way they are attacking. Now, the relationship between the militants and the population, it's it's very complicated. It's it's fraught, but there and you know, and there's some important nuances to to grasp here. There's there's a relationship there. It's an abusive relationship, but it's a it's it's a relationship of some kind. So, uh, you know, let's first talk about the displacement because this has been a major trend. On the one hand, a large part of the displacement that has that has been caused has been caused because militants themselves seem to have a deliberate policy of driving people off the land. And victims of violence we've spoken to have told us repeatedly that when militants attack, they order people to flee, warning them not to come back and threatening those who stay with death. And that includes even Mwani and Makwa populations. The group clearly has chosen to flush the population and the state off the land, which they've succeeded in doing, for example, in, in the port of Musimboya de Praia itself since August 2020. And they're creating spaces where they can roam through, but where they don't need to necessarily govern or control. And they can set up camps and do things they need to do without the fear of that local people may be spying on them. That seems to be part of the motivation for the way that they are treating civilians, flushing them off the land. And so in doing this, they've killed a lot of civilians. This is true. And they've also abducted many, including women who are, who are now forced into to forced marriages and se- sexual slavery in militant camps. At the same time, the militants sort of discriminate very carefully at times who they want to kill. So witnesses saw them kill in the port city of Mosimboya de Praia, uh, who told us that um, some of them stopped civilians at checkpoints and that they were killing those who were um, showing them government-issued identification cards and sparing those who had no identification cards. Um, there's also a famous video, a militant video from, from a recent attack when, you know, militants after an attacking a town, waving the black flag of the caliphate have specifically said that they were denouncing the flag of the ruling party for Limo. So that was a very pointed message. At the same time, in spite of all of these abuses, the militants are from communities themselves. They're the sons of the soil. They're also recruiting from these civilian pools enticing young men like themselves to join them, often with money and the promises of an abundant and exciting life. So, you know, on the one hand, there, is the, there are these abuses that take place. On the other hand, they try and, and, and um, maintain a relationship with, with, with parts of the communities that they recruit from. There are also stories that we hear from, from civilians who, who've come across militants in the bush who've been spared and and sometimes when the group has been flushing out um, population, sure, they kill some people, but they've also handed out money to some people they've recognized in the community as being close to them or, or related to them in, in some way and giving them um, resources to actually evacuate. And, Dino, in, in other parts of the continent, in other parts of the world, similar militant groups have sort of gained the if not the support, at least the acquiescence of locals by providing sort of basic services where the state hasn't been able to. So stepping in with kind of rough enforced dispute resolution, even in some cases providing basic security. Is there any of that at all in Cabo Delgado or are they really mostly predatory? It's mostly a predatory, roving predatory group at this stage um, because, as I said, the, the main focus has been pushing people off the land and this has been a major reason for the displacement. That being said, 
they're keen also to appear as if they are on the side of civilians. So there have been times when after attacking government security forces in Musimboy the Prior, they were handing out food. They do at times try and develop some form of utility for, for the civilians. And if you think of the sort of things they're demanding, I, I don't know if it's even possible to, to assess what they want, you know, whether it is just greater social economic equality, whether it is a different role for Islam in public life. If there's any way of assessing that, how much do those ideas enjoy support among the communities in which they're operating, even if those communities don't like the violence? Yeah, so here it's worth maybe going back and separating out the Tanzanians from, from the Mozambicans because it's it's generally accepted from those who've had some limited contacts with the militant group who've eyewitnessed what they you know what life is like in the camps that the set of Tanzanians tend to be more ideologically uh, indoctrinated and of course there are some Mozambicans among among the leadership as well who are who are likewise so but the rank and file the vast majority of the youth seem to be guys who just want to um, you know who are enticed f- often for financial reasons Money is playing a big part in terms of the recruitment here, and we've documented that. But also who are often thinking of leaving when their payments don't come in. So when they're disappointed that they're not receiving the material benefits that they've been promised, then they're also you know, more likely to, to leave. Now, this has really important implications in terms of how the government can relate to communities going forward and what might define the relationship between communities, what we, what we might be able to understand might be the relationship between communities and, and some of these militants going forward. Because we've talked to ordinary civilians and, and also accessed a lot of information, detailed surveys of, of, of what civilians are saying in uh, Cabo Delgado. And it looks like what the civilians want, well, obviously they want security, uh, what they also want is uh, the government to play a role in the rehabilitation of their communities. Uh, and But then they also want to be part of the management of that rehabilitation. In other words, they want to have a stake in the development of their communities. None of that is necessarily very uh, surprising. But what is interesting is that while some of them are obviously scarred by the violence that has been inflicted on them, and you know, I've spoken to civilians who are angry and who want to... To, to see the, the militants punished. Others believe that any redevelopment of the community also has to appeal to the interests of, of, of these militants. And if that can be done in, in a way that appeals both to the interests of the community and to militants, this might really be an important way of resolving, soothing local tensions and, and being a part of bringing this conflict to, to some kind of resolution. Thanks, Dino. Could I just zoom in and look at the role of the state and particularly how the government has sort of reacted since the emergence of this insurgency, in particular because it is a resource-rich area and clearly there are tensions between that province and the state. But can you sort of walk us through as to how the government has responded to, to to this rising insurgency? The response so far has been primarily a security response. There's also governance issues, which we can, which we can des- describe first. Now, Cabo Delgado is, it's a wild and a distant province. It's 2,000 kilometers away from, from Maputo. And while the Frelimo state has tentacles that reach down to very local levels 
even what some top Frelimo officials acknowledge is that systems of governance on behalf of the local population have been weak. Indeed, since independence, Cabo Delgado uh, has, has slowly become a kind of repository for all kinds of illicit trade, including large amounts of drug smuggling with drugs cargoes arriving at sea on the coast and then being trafficked uh, on land through, through the hands of elite businessmen with connections to some individuals in, in the ruling party. And that's been, you know, uh, documented by all sorts of organizations ad nauseum. But the point here is that the, the narco business, some Frelimo officials concede, distorts maybe the incentives of local officials who see that as their main occupational priority rather than necessarily the development of local economies for their people. Now, the security response in Mozambique is roughly the size of Pakistan and has a military the size of of 12,000 in total, some of which has to be deployed right now in the center of the country. And the government is working there on trying to achieve a surrender of a dissident armed faction of the Rinamo opposition group that is part of a peace process going on since 2019. So the army is stretched between Cabo Delgado and the center of the country. Now, its, its Soviet-era stockpiles are also significantly in a state of, of disrepair. So anyway, the, 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 the point I'm making here is that there's been a security response, but, but from a security architecture that's very weak. And indeed, the government have ultimately relied not on the military for now, but on a rapid reaction police unit. Which over, the, which over recent years has been relatively well-funded. And while they've undoubtedly dented the militants from time to time, they've also struggled to contain this Al-Shabaab movement, which, which has rebounded with greater ferocity at every cycle, in every you know, ongoing cycle of, of the conflict since 2017. And this police unit has also had to use foreign military contractors. First, they used the Russian group Wagner, which is widely known to have links to the, to the Kremlin. However, some Russian mercenaries were killed and that, that operation was wound up. Then they used a South African private military contractor, but have ended the agreement with them. And in the process, there were accusations against uh, them by human rights activists and so forth. So e- even if those, those police forces and their contractors have, have been able to do something, it's still not been enough to, to actually get a grip on on this group, which keeps rebounding and perpetrating ever more deadly and serious attacks. You know, you've talked a lot about Tanzanian involvement, fighters' involvement in this insurgency. We know that there are other foreign elements, but ISIS particularly has often claimed um, some of the attacks in its names. A couple of months ago, that the US called the Al-Shabaab group as a sort of a local branch of, of ISIS as well. Is it really ISIS? So it's, it's obviously very difficult to get very strong information about this, but we can discuss what we know. First of all, we've described that this group is, is a composite in nature, and it's, it's got fighters with different interests in there, Mozambican, Tanzanian. We've also heard from eyewitnesses who've been released from al-Shabaab camps that they've seen other types of foreigners in there. Well, the information is not very clear. They talk about light-skinned people. So there's lots of speculation about where some of those people might come from. But even, even then, there are not many of them. And that information is, is, as I say, quite weak. At the same time, it's clear that ISIS is trying to strike up some kind of relationship. Islamic State has made about 40 public statements, you know, celebrating or claiming attacks since 2019. 
Many of these statements are are inaccurate, often describing events that perhaps didn't even happen. Some of them come very late. And then there was this notable uh, gap of public communications from October 2020 until March 2021 when the the attack on Palma happened. And then ISIS suddenly popped up again and, 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 you know, broadcast, celebrated this all over its propaganda channels but then used images uh, from, from a previous possible attack, not even in Palma, but in Mosimboy de Praia, which then poured cold water all over the, the idea that there's some kind of very slick communication going on uh, um, between ISIS propaganda department and, and, and al-Shabaab. So, Dino, the, the way you describe it, and tell me if this is wrong, but the way you describe it, it seems the link between the global movement ISIS, which in any case is obviously much, much weaker than it was a few years ago. You know, It's not really even clear sort of what it is anymore after it lost all this territory in Iraq and Syria. But the links between that global movement and what's happening on the ground in Cabo Delgado seem very tenuous, to say the least. And often we hear this argument, I mean, we sometimes make this argument that calling groups ISIS calling local insurrections ISIS kind of skews our understanding of them. It means that people overlook their local dynamics, focus on their sort of transnational identity, and and can even make them out to be more dangerous than they actually are. But whether it's ISIS or not, the insurrection in Cabo Delgado is still a big problem, right? I mean, Maputo, Sadek, they're right to be worried. Their response isn't really being shaped by whether it's ISIS or not. It's being shaped by the, the local and regional threat that this group poses. Mozambican officials I've spoken to have been pretty sanguine and sensible about this. They're, they're not necessarily over, over-egging the, the ISIS threat. They're worried about it. You know, they've, they've engaged in debate with me when I you know, present them, well, there isn't a strong enough evidence base to suggest this is the case. But that doesn't mean that, that they shouldn't be worried about it. It could turn into something you know, that that has a much more visible ISIS footprint later down, down the road. We just don't n- know at this point. The region is looking to uh, intervene, not simply because it's, it's, it's ISIS. I think that, you know, ISIS made its first claim of association in June 2019, but I think the region was already getting worried even before then. So as you rightly say, you know, the threat is manifest. It's on the ground. There's combat. There's hundreds of thousands of people fleeing. Transnational jihadis, you know, even from within the region who have plugged in, Tanzania notably, but then, as I said earlier, South African officials fear that some of their own homegrown radicals might try and get up there and, and, and try and learn something. So it, it is a concern, but it's not the overriding concern here, as you rightly say. Um, Dan, I just want to shift now in terms of where we are in the region you know, after the, the Palmer attacks in, in March, that really sharpened the government's focus. In a sense, we saw it concede to the idea of some kind of external intervention that would come from the region. Now, that conversation has sort of ebbed and flowed, and, we, and it's not quite clear where things are right now. And there's supposed to be a SADC summit meeting um, coming up. Where are we exactly in that debate as to whether there will be some kind of regional deployment in the, in the country? So, so, so the, the SADC regional bloc has been expressing its interest since May 2020 in intervening somehow with, with, with some of its member states gradually applying more and more pressure on, on President Yusi to accede to some kind of regional intervention. At a recent SADC uh, regional meeting, President Yusi agreed that there would be 
a SADAC regional assessment team to go to, to Maputo, uh, to Mozambique, to, to draw up an, an assessment of what it would take to, to, to do something about this group. Um, that technical team got on the ground and then its report, which was leaked, uh, suggested that there needed to be a intervention force of around 3,000, which many Mozambique officials have sort of balked at and found that to be really sort of maybe even going over the top. However, since that technical assessment, there hasn't really been any resolution. And and I think President Nusi and many Mozambican officials are hesitant to see anything like that that kind of size of force deploy into Cabo Delgado. And part of the reason for that is, well, simply that um, a regional force that size, you know, coming from neighboring countries which don't know the terrain, could conceivably get bogged down in quagmire locally. Uh, Troops from SADAC member states that are already under UN blue helmets in in Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo have for years struggled to get their arms around the allied democratic forces there who are uh, another uh, Islamist allied, or at least one faction of which is is purportedly ISIS-affiliated. And Mozambican officials and and President Nusi feel that that, that, you know, that they may want to avoid a similar fate. Now, some of the pr- critics of the president say, well, um, he's just avoiding any kind of intervention because he doesn't want to, to disrupt the illicit political economy of Cabo Delgado. But the government just sort of dismissed that outrightly because, and, and say that they are looking for external support. And one of the partners that they've turned to now is, as you mentioned, Rwanda, after a recent summit uh, ended without any uh, agreement, um, President Nusi flew to Kigali, met President Paul Kagame, and since then Rwandan um, military officers have come to Cabo Delgado to do their own scoping assessment mission. The Mozambican government appeared to be warming to the idea of some kind of bespoke Rwandan engagement in Mozambique in support of Mozambican special forces that are already being trained by Western partners. He's not shutting the door completely to SADC, but he's just saying we don't need a huge deployment like this. You know, we've heard the government's sort of position on a military solution, but we also know that a military solution on its own will never be enough, as we've seen in the Sahel or the Lake Chad Basin or even Somalia, for, for that matter. So what other initiatives um, are being considered by, by the government? Are they, you know, are they robust? Are they, are they clear? Are they comprehensive? It's something that we've often called for in other places where we're seeing sort of these types of in, insurgencies emerge. The government recognizes itself that that there will not be a military, only a military solution to to this problem. I mean, I've heard um, advisors, even to the ministry, an advisor even close to the ministry of defense, saying we'll never defeat them, we'll never defeat Al Shabaab. And so, what they what they may be best trying to do is to try and degrade or contain this group, put enough pressure on them to give as we've said, some of these rank and files, an incentive to, you know, more incentives to want to leave the group, while at the same time uh, the government has, has started extending plans to channel in hundreds of millions of dollars of development money. And this is, this is lucky for, for Mozambique because it's, it's being offered hundreds of millions of dollars um, through World Bank basket funds that, that the government can then use to try and 
um, pro channel into these communities of Cabo Delgado and other places in the north to cool local tensions, to win back confidence of, of, of the population. And if security operations are also having some effect, then more people are going to come back, more of the displaced people are going to come back into these, into these areas. As those initiatives take root, they can then use the population who, as we've said, have still have some kinship relationships with the militants, you know, use them to, 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 to open up channels of communication with the rank and file and, and start persuading some of these guys to come back to society. Could we maybe end by asking how worried should uh, outside actors be about what's happening in Cabo Delgado and, and what should they be doing about it? So everybody sh- should rightfully be concerned. The, the regional countries, Western partners, you know, the, the international community has a duty to, to, to be vigilant here um, and not leave Mozambique or the, or the region alone in this struggle. Um, there is a role for the region specifically, for the SADAC region, but also the East African states uh, within the IGAD regional bloc to cross-collaborate with each other in terms of sharing intelligence, perhaps even working together to, on, on law enforcement operations that can have an impact on stimming any transnational support, which has been limited so far, but, but, but stimming that support to what is going on the, on the ground in Cabo Delgado, and which also partially relates to Tanzania itself. Dino, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks to you both. Thank you. So, Comfort, anything strike you in the in the conversation? I mean, you've been following this crisis in Cabo Delgado so closely for several years now. You know, Richard, I think just listening to, to Dino, it's, it is a very familiar tale, you know, of a localised um, sort of grievance that mushrooms out of control because the government hasn't initially taken it seriously, has used sort of a heavy-handed approach to addressing what are very localised um, grievances, that group takes root, it is able to recruit from within the population of other aggrieved people, attracting young people. Oftentimes it has a transnational sort of linkage across porous borders. And sooner or later you have an unmanageable, um, uncontrollable insurrection. And this is what we have in, in Mozambique. And having watched um, the Lake Chad Basin, Boko Haram, um, again, a very localized insurrection in Northeast Nigeria, heavy-handed approach by a government who never took it seriously and oftentimes Richard that while these are very different contexts um, the ingredients are very familiar and some of those solutions um, that are needed um, are are often very familiar but sometimes we see governments take a misstep in, in handling these situations. Yeah, that's so, uh, so well put. As you say, obviously, a lot of local specifics, but it's really quite a familiar story. The other thing, Comfort, that sort of struck me, and you know a lot more about this than, than I do, uh, so interested in, in what you think, is how the Cabo Delgado insurrection and the regional response to that might contribute to what you could call an evolving African continent-wide security architecture. You know, the past few years, you've had these different counterinsurgency experiments the AU force in Somalia, of course, you know, to fight the Somali al-Shabaab. You've had the SADC force in eastern DRC that Dino mentioned, the Force Intervention Brigade, which is part of the UN mission. You've got the multinational uh, joint task force, the MNJTF, uh, in Lake Chad against Boko Haram, and now the G5, this force that's fighting militants across parts of the of the Sahel. 
you know, different answers on different parts of the continent to dealing with militant groups that African leaders, you know, rightly or wrongly, can't imagine negotiating with. And all these sort of regional interventions, they, you know, they, some of them have been there for a long time now, and there's really no sign that any of them are, are winding down. And in some ways, that's sort of the context for the debate around this force that Sadek wants to deploy, uh, this 3,000-strong force that it's been plugging to Maputo and, and uh, President Nausi, you know, it, I have to say in some ways, understandably, is is kind of wary about that and, and looking for this support from Rwanda's. See what happens there. But I'm interested, you know, interested in what you think of how this might might contribute to the way the continent's thinking about responding to this type of this type of challenge. You're right. And I also we shouldn't lose sight of the geopolitics around Rwanda and South Africa and their relationships and how that may cause more problems for Mozambique, who will be in the sort of pity in the middle with that. Dino was right to point out to let the lessons that Sadak needs to learn. And it's a cautionary tale about how one should intervene. And I think it's therefore right that the intervention needs to be measured, much more needs to accompany that military approach. What you don't want is a situation where Sadat becomes a party to the problem, further exacerbates the crisis, it's not a stabiliser and doesn't help reduce the human suffering in, in the region. So yes, that the region has to be involved. South Africa specifically understand what this means on its doorstep. They have to be very careful, very cautious, very deliberative to make sure they don't further fuel um, or an already tense um, situation and um, already this is a, a region um, that is already volatile stemming from, from Somalia right down to Tanzania into Mozambique so they can't afford for this to to blow up and they have to manage this in a very careful way with the support I think of, of various international actors. Audio Fire is a production of the International Crisis Group. I am Comfort Aero. And I'm Richard Atwood. You can find more of our work on our website, crisisgroup.org, or follow us on Twitter, at Crisis Group. I should also plug our fantastic podcast on the Horn of Africa. It's called The Horn. It's hosted by Alan Boswell. It's a, a great dive into the region's politics every other week. Thank you very much to our producers, May Francis and Ida Holly Nambi. And thanks especially to our listeners. Please do leave us a question, a comment, a rating or review, and we hope you'll join us again next week. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.